the other day during dinner, Narayani and I were kind of just discussing the creation of this universe and we were talking about just, you know, scientifically speaking, how uh, science explains the randomness of it all, like, oh, and you know, just, just this molecule happened to be there and this molecule attached to this molecule and it just so happened to create nitrogen and this so happened to create hydrogen and it was just such a random act that the earth came together in the way it came together and it was just another random act that suddenly sprung life and while people can see randomness, you know, as we can see randomness sometimes in our own thoughts, we see randomness in our own actions, we see randomness in life all around us. But if we have just a little bit of an attitude of seeing the larger show and not just those individual random acts, you see such a loving, intelligent hand weaving together. In fact, this is how Krishna says it that God hides himself in the multitude. So obviously in order to hide himself, he like had to make it look like, oh, I wasn't doing anything. You know, in fact, in that conversation, I think it was like a one hour long conversation. I mean, we went through, you know, everything, the, everything how the, the sun planets, came together, solar system, then. how many moons there are in other planets. I mean, it just went on and on. At some point, we, we both of us had to realize the majestic you know the way in which god has created this universe i mean and no matter how beautifully shujo was describing the whole thing and i was trying you know to mentally you know understand things both of us at some point had to step back and really admire mm -hmm. what god has created in such a unique intertwined narayani was yeah. <laughs> asking about you know i mean we remember we i mean these are like we talked about days of brahma and nights of brahma and so you know she was like so after the night of brahma will this whole thing happen again in the next day and we were just pausing <laughs> and just, you know these are questions none of us can actually while, answer while the dark, like, <laughs> yeah, like, ah. but it just came to me that probably it'll happen in a completely different way yeah. You know, just as like these molecules were getting together and creating hydrogen, maybe the next time they create something else and then something else manifests because God is infinite and God is ever new and God never repeats himself. <laughs> he doesn't say, yeah, last time was earth was much better, let's try that again. No, he just, he just says, let's see what's going to happen this time because my consciousness is just infinite and I can express myself infinitely and ever new, joyful, blissful ways. So... We'll, I guess we just need to wait till the next day of Brahma to figure out what kind of manifestation and, and comes. And then Yogananda comes into the picture and tells us everything out there in, in the universe, you know, the galaxies, all that complicated, you know, universe is within us. I mean, it's just like mind-blowing, you know, like, wow, all that vastness all those planets and stars and galaxies, everything is within us. And we can discover that just in meditation, with our Hongso, with our Kriya practice, with the Om technique. Anyway, that was like when some people ask us, what do you guys do for your relaxing time? <laughs> well, this is what we do. We just <laughs> keep 
talking and thinking. Contemplating about. the nature of what's going on over here. Anyway. But you know, that's the topic that we're continuing as it is. This was the question Arjuna poses to Krishna in the beginning. What is Kshetra? This is the uh, chapter, in fact, chapter 13 is called the field of battle. What is this Kshetra? What is the Kshetragya? What is Prakriti? What is Purusha? And what's the whole purpose of it all? What's the knowledge that I need to acquire? And of course, we've come already a long enough way. We're on um, verse 21. We introduced the concept of the Gunas. We used, and I will continue to use the example. If you, in fact, have not tuned into the previous class, I really highly recommend that you do because a lot of context is going to have to be drawn from there uh, rather than having to repeat it all over again. But, you know, the concept of the dreamer and the dream and how the dreamer is the soul and the dream is all of Prakriti. Um, so let's continue our <laughs> this bafflingly amazing conversation. <clears throat> this is the 22nd verse. The Supreme Spirit manifested in each body as the soul is the detached witness. It is through man's conscience that it is through man's conscience the counsellor who, though accepting all, offers guidance if asked. I love this line. Let's just look, up, look at it again. The Supreme Spirit manifested in each body as the soul is the detached witness. It is the counsellor who, though accepting all, offers guidance if asked. The soul is the sustainer the one who experiences but doesn't react with feelings of either pleasure or pain, but he experiences the great Lord and Supreme Self. When I read this verse, automatically the very image of Krishna comes to my mind, because isn't that the role Krishna is playing? Like, I'm not going to do anything here, you know, but I'll offer you guidance if you ask for it. And in the very story of the Mahabharat, you know, we've got this really the crucial kind of turning point of the entire Mahabharat is when Arjuna, you know, reaches Krishna's palace, comes there and he finds where Duryodhana is already there. <laughs> Both of them have come with this intention to ask of Krishna. And one has come with the intention to ask the Purusha and one has come with the intention to ask Prakriti. Both are... Equal aspects of the divine, both are God, both are Krishna. But when Krishna asks, you choose, what do you want? Arjuna says, I want, so what are the options? Either you take me, but I will not act. I will not do anything. I'm just going to be your charioteer and I will guide you if you ask for it. And on the other hand, you can take all my armies, you can take all my weapons, you can take everything that I have manifested. And of course, Arjuna asks for Krishna and Duryodhana asks for the armies. And it's in that very moment that the battle's actually already won. You know, they could have just stopped the Mahabharata right there and said, okay, oh yeah, everybody, you know, go back to your places, Khatam. But of course, the battle has to take place. And we get that opportunity every day. You know, every day we have the opportunity to ask. Uh, answer that very question, who do you choose? Who are you going to choose? And while many of us would like to think that, ah, if I was, you know, if, of course, if I was Arjuna, 
Of course I would choose Krishna. You know, it's like, since we've read the end of the book, we already know what we should do. So it's, of course I'll choose Krishna. But when every day we are given the option, when every day God says to us, do you choose me? But I'm not going to do anything. It's just, I'm just going to shower you my love. Or do you choose me in the form of money? You know, and of course, in that moment, we're like, well, you see, Krishna, uh, I would very much love to choose you. I, I really would. But bills I want this also and I need this also. So right now, just this one time, I'll choose you in the form of money. You know, and then he asks, do you want me? Or do you want me in the form of somebody who you can get attached to and have expectations of just so that they will love you in return? And the same thing happens. Oh, I really want to choose only you, but... And so on and so forth. Every day, we're given the choice. Every day, we choose the other. And every day, we lose the battle. Therefore, this whole drama continues. If even for one day, we could have chosen just God. Imagine what that would have been. And that's what you do. I mean, Narayani and I just came out of a seclusion. And that's what the intention is, at least. But it's very hard. I remember just this very seclusion. I was trying to fast for a couple of days. And, you know, here you are, you're fasting, you're feeling good. But just somewhere in the back of your mind is like, it's okay, I think you've done enough, you know. <laughs> Why don't you go have a little bit of something? Because just that part of us is just there. That desire for Prakriti is so strong in us. And this is what Krishna is saying, that of course Prakriti is strong. It manifests through the three gunas. And you've got people like Swami Kriyananda. Yesterday we celebrated his moksha anniversary. And there's this beautiful story of Swamiji's where he's just doing, you know, he's just really unwell. And his body's just suffering a lot. That's something he did a lot with his kshetra. You know, on his field of battle, he took a lot of battles. And most of those battles were our battles. But he took them on himself. So he's going through one such battle with his body. And he had a program to give, you know, just that evening. But he was just so weak and whatever he was going through was really, really affecting him outwardly. And so one of the devotees, you know, lovingly, of course, suggests to him, Swamiji, you know, well, it's, it's okay, Swamiji. If you don't show, it's okay. We can just cancel the whole thing. And Swami just looks up at that devotee and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. These are the words of Christ when Satan was, when the devil was trying to tempt Christ to not fulfill his dharma. Christ says to Satan, get thee behind me. Wait, piche hut. And of course the devotee was not trying to say, but for Swami it was like, are you saying I should choose low energy and not serve my guru just because my body is suffering? Is that the choice you're giving me? No, Swami chose God. Swami chose I will serve my Guru. And that choice is why he won. Every day of his life he won the battle. And eventually he won his freedom. And that is why we will win our freedom every day if we remember this choice. Because here's this beautiful part. It is a detached witness accepting all. Imagine if nobody had ever gone to Krishna and even involved him in the, in the Mahabharata. Krishna would not have done anything. He would have just accepted, oh, you guys want to fight? Fight. You want to do all this stuff? Do it. But because he was asked, he came. And that's key here. Ask for God. Ask for the soul's power to flow through you. Ask for your guru's help in every moment. 
so many people come to us for counseling and the end of the day you can tell people stuff it's just like but are you not asking god every day are you not drawing on this power because really that's where all the answers will come there's nothing we can tell you that's not going to be more powerful if you draw it directly from god because if krishna is present the battle's already won it doesn't matter then if you still have to go through a few steps but the battle is won even if narayani and i give you the right answer there's no guarantee that the battle will be won that's the key here so call on this power every day choose krishna over his army whatever his mode of life one who understands the relationship between the spirit which is also the soul and nature which is also the individual body with its threefold gunas even though he engages outwardly in the activity of his life need never again undergo rebirth so krishna is stating it like super plainly oh you don't want to undergo rebirth all you have to do is understand the relationship between spirit and nature once you understood this you never have to go through the process and of course when he says understand he means completely realize you know for us understanding is like acha bas itna hi karna hai i have understood this is the problem of why you know you've got these pandits and brahmans who understand scripture but you know they they, they don't really live scripture and they can certainly recite it you know in your beautiful sanskrit but that doesn't mean anything does it one somebody master was yogananda our guru was scolding a disciple you know for some little thing reprimanding and the disciple kind of like most of us would say is like yeah master i understand <laughs> and master says you do not understand because if you really did you would do what i told you to do you know it's like that simple another time also with swami ji a devotee when swami was trying to explain something to them he, he says swami ji i think i understand and swami says I don't want you to understand I want you to change <laughs> and that's the difference here we're just so satisfied ah acha acha gunas acha acha nature acha spirit ah maine samajh liya sab that's not going to help of course that's what i'm saying here we are understanding all these words but the battle is being lost every day because we don't change we don't choose we don't live by the understanding just yesterday we initiated some people into a vow called the pilgrim vow which was something swami ji created and in the very second line it says i understand and then it says and from now on choose to live by that understanding that life is a pilgrimage because you tell somebody life is a pilgrimage hi ar sahi bol raha hai tu life is a pilgrimage but that's it and then now chalo khana khate hain now chalo ye karte hain now chalo wo karte hain if life is a pilgrimage then and the only goal should be to seek god so i understand that all this while i've understood it but now i choose to live by that understanding and that's the key here and that's what krishna wants us to do don't just know ki ha tamas hai and sattva hai and rajo hai kar kya rahe ho iske sath baithe hain fir bhi hum tamas mein ha hum tamas mein hai rajo mein utho sattva mein utho then you will get to that state where you don't have to undergo any more rebirths to behold the self in the self by the self <laughs> some seekers follow the path of meditation some that of knowledge and some the path of selfless activity so in order to experience the self which is what krishna means 
by understanding the relationship. To experience the self by the self, the capital S by the little s. Chota ego, when it experiences the soul through the self, which is through our clarified mind, when the mind gets completely still, then you have that complete understanding. And in order to have that understanding, Krishna says, some follow the path of meditation, some follow the path of knowledge, which is Jnana Yoga, and others follow the path of selfless activity, which is Karma Yoga. Now, interestingly, he does not say Bhakti Yoga, which is, of course, another key thing. And Swamiji goes at length when he gives in his explanations, and he talks about Krishna is no longer even mentioning Bhakti because he's so well established that Bhakti ki kuch nahi wala hai. Swami says very interestingly, and I have not heard him say, I have not really tuned into him saying this before. He says, if there is no devotion, no matter what path you follow, all spiritual practice only brings good karma, but it does not free you from bondage. Uh, uh, that's a... That's something I've really haven't tuned into him saying before. If, let's say this again, there is no devotion in anything that you practice, whether it's Jnana Yoga, whether it's Karma Yoga, what are you doing this for? What love in your heart do you hold as you meditate? What love are you seeking as you are using your wisdom and discernment? What love are you trying to share as you do your karma yoga, as you perform those selfless acts. Only that leads to freedom. Otherwise, Swami says, all spiritual practices only bring good karma, which is a great thing. But for a yogi, karma is karma. <laughs> you know, good, bad, ugly, awesome, it just doesn't matter. It's all binding one way or the other. Some men, this is one of my favorite little passages in this, in this chapter. Some men, ignorant of these three paths, which were meditation, jnana, and karma, heed the instructions of their guru, accepting what he teaches as their supreme refuge. They approach the truth worshipfully and thus cross over the river of death. This is our path. We are ignorant of meditation is, what wisdom is. You know, we can pretend that we seem to have a lot of wisdom as we're explaining these concepts, but none of these concepts are ours. We can give you a beautiful class on how to meditate, but that's not ours either. It's all our gurus. And I, when I first came onto the path, yeah, I had a lot of, you know, man, I read a lot and I gathered all this information. But when I finally came to my guru, so much of it was useless. So much of it was an obstacle. Oh, I've read this and I've read that and I know this and I can quote this person and oh, Osho said this so beautifully and this person said this even more beautifully. You can say whatever beautifully, <laughs> but it's not my gurus. And that's a very, very, I love this thing because it's like, okay, you can follow these things, but if you're ignorant of them, and most of us unfortunately are ignorant, you know, you can pretend to be sitting in meditation for a very long time, but if you're not really experiencing God in that meditation, you're just sitting around, aren't we? And what's interesting for me of this is, heeding the Guru, is in this previous chapter, if you remember, uh, chapter 12, verse 6, 
Krishna talks about the difference between abstraction and personal devotion, where Arjuna asks him, should I be seeking, you know, the infinite omnipresent spirit or should I be kind of worshipping you? And Krishna, of course, says, well, the abstract version makes the spiritual path a little more arduous. And that's what happens when we first come, we're, we're looking at, we're really seeking an abstraction, freedom, bliss, you know, I mean, these are just terms we are throwing out as if we actually understand them. Uh, you know, I'm seeking bliss. Bliss ka, matlab, bibi ni hamne kabhi dekha nahi abhi tak, but we are seeking bliss, chalo. And in this chapter, on the sixth verse, Krishna says, for those who venerate me only, you know, only is an important word here, offering to me all their actions, their minds concentrated on me by yoga practice, and their hearts feelings uplifted to me in devotion, such devotees I rescue from the ocean of mortality. And that's what the Guru does. Guru can give you grace that an abstraction can't give you. But that's why you have to be so completely committed to the Guru. That's what Krishna is trying to help us understand and see here. They heed the instructions of their Guru, accepting what he teaches as their supreme refuge. Not that No wonder none of us really understand the concept of the Guru because we're all over the place. But when you take refuge in the Guru, when you venerate me only, and me here, Krishna doesn't mean Krishna, me as in that consciousness that I express through many self-realized masters. But when you tune into one of that ray of consciousness and take your entire refuge there, then I can lift you up out of the ocean of mortality. And that's the most beautiful thing. And now when somebody asks me, you know, are you a Jnana Yogi or this Yogi or that Yogi? It's just like, oh, well, actually, we're disciples. And then if the Guru says meditate, we meditate. And if he says serve, we serve. But no longer do I have this delusion that I meditate because through my meditation, I'm just going to be free and, you know, I'm just going to do it. Ah, I think, you know, enough years on the path has humbled me to the point that says, And that's an important reality to have, of course, if you've not yet found your guru, if you don't have that connection, because that connection is important, then in the meantime, there are other ways for you to continue, start meditating, even if you don't know what you are doing, even if there's nobody giving you precise guidance, start tuning into and creating an understanding of how this universe functions, start, start serving selflessly and doing karma yoga. But when you find your guru, when you have even a glimpse of a potential, then give him your all. Oh, best of Bharatas Arjuna, whatever is in existence, Know that, know it to have been born of the union of Chetra, which is the body or nature, and Chetragya, which is spirit or soul. So what's Krishna saying? If there's anything in this universe, know that it is the union of Prakriti and Purusha. Nothing can exist without Purusha empowering. Not one atom, Yogananda said, does not contain the spark of God. Everything, everything, everything 
in nature, in being, in existence, exists only because it is united with spirit. And that's, a, again, a very key understanding for us. And then you can tune into spirit in any way you want. You know, we live in this beautiful place over here, and we're close to nature, fortunately, and that's a beautiful, um, really a, a, a luxury to have today. And you can really feel like, you know, sometimes you're like missing, like, oh, if somebody were there to caress me and hug me, all you have to do is step out and, and the wind just caresses you and hugs you and envelops you. You know, and you wonder, like, nobody's listening to me. All you have to go into a little bit of, and you just hear nature just talking to you, speaking to you, communicating with you. Nobody there to support me. All you have to do is sit on a piece of rock and you'll feel that immediate support because there's consciousness there. And when you can't feel God easily in the world, then try to feel Him in nature. Because every aspect of this being is empowered with Him. He sees truly who perceives the Supreme Lord present equally in all beings, the imperishable within the perishing. He sees truly, I love these words, He sees truly who perceives the Supreme Lord present equally in all beings. Again and again, Krishna has made this point. Just got to tune into me everywhere. <laughs> Don't think in some isolation of your own self alone. Of course, we first need to have a real experience of Him. Because otherwise we just say, huh, oh, God is everywhere, God is everywhere. But we don't act as if God is everywhere. You know, it's the same little misunderstanding. He sees truly who perceives God everywhere. Otherwise, like Christ said, it's just the blind <laughs> leading the blind. And so far, all of us are just a little bit blind. Some of us at least have one eye open a little bit. But little by little, that's what we want to feel. It's just everywhere. And this next, you know, kind of clarifies it even more. Beholding the divine presence everywhere, he no longer harms himself by self-ignorance. That's the key here. It's not like, oh, you have to behold me everywhere so that you can not harm anybody else. So that you don't harm yourself. Every negative thought towards anything and everyone is hurting you. Any action that's a little disharmonious is hurting you. And how much hurt are we causing ourselves every day just because we refuse to see God in everyone? I mean, think about in your own body, like this in totality of your body, if your stomach suddenly decides to, you know, tune into the liver and says, Bhai, you know, why are you so different? Why aren't you doing what I'm doing? Why don't you act the way I act? Why is your color so off? Why don't you believe what I believe? You know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deal with you. And then the heart tells the stomach, but I'm not gonna deal with you then. And so on and so forth. And you know, <laughs> suddenly nobody wants to work with nobody. And you know, there we are, we're dead. And that's what's happening. I mean, we're killing ourselves, we're harming our own very potential for freedom if that's what we don't do. If we don't see or if we don't try our best. To see God in absolutely everyone and everything. The man, that man sees truly again. He's like, he who is not blind is, who perceives that all actions are performed 
by nature alone, not by the self. Now, this is the, you can say, crux of the Jnana Yogi, right? Where he asks, who am I? Who is hungry? Who is getting upset? Who is thinking? And these are beautiful questions to ask yourself. Again, only to help build this at least perceived understanding that there are two forces at play, the soul and nature, purusha, prakriti. But all that is being manifested, all that is being performed is of nature, is of prakriti. And the soul, purusha, only gets to experience prakriti. So every time you're tuning into this process, you're like, who is hungry? Oh, the body is hungry. I'm not hungry. Who's upset? Ah, oh, the heart is upset. I'm not upset. <laughs> Who's worried? Ah, oh, the mind is worried. I'm not worried. And little by little, I mean, even in the beginning, of course, this is all lies because I'm actually hungry. <laughs> but it, it jogs this whole process. There was a member in early days of Ananda, a lady who decided that in order not to, you know, relate to herself at all, she was never going to use the word I. And so she always called herself this unit of consciousness. Of course, it didn't last very long. <laughs> and you, know, you, can only you can only play that charade out for so long until you actually believe yourself to be a true unit of consciousness. But you know, it's a, it's a commendable effort. At least there's an intention to realize that there's some distance that's taking place between these two realities. You can think of Purusha here, you know, spirit here, and nature here. And what connects them to is the ego. Well, what we think of the ego is we think the ego is some sort of a fixed reality, but the ego is like, you know, those little uh, beads like on an abacus, like Bachini said, and that's what the ego is. Right now, for the majority of us, ego is much more towards Prakriti. It's much more identified with Prakriti. And all we are really trying to do is not break this bead. We're just trying to move this bead until it feels that it's much more the soul. That's what we're really, the whole play is. Because it's not something fixed that we have to just cut through. It's like, which side should I slide towards more? Where is the magnetism drawing me? And every act that we do, every thought that we think decides, today it could be a little bit more here, but then tomorrow it may go back here, and then day after it may. And of course the play continues until dheere, 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 we get here. When the yogi sees all beings as contained in the one, Having expanded his consciousness to include all living beings, he merges into Brahman. You know, just and of course we don't need to start with you know oh, I'm going to merge with all. Let's just merge with one first. <laughs> I'm just trying my best to merge with Narayani here. <laughs> That's hard enough, you know. And you merge with whoever's right next to you. Don't kind of go all cosmicy on us and say I'm just going to merge with everyone in the universe. You know, even in two people, we can barely sometimes get along. We can barely see the divine in each other. We can barely see past our own personalities and opinions and egos. So, you know, work on that. Make this a joyful process. Like, okay, with this one, <laughs> it's a good reminder. Narayani is like, ah, <laughs> 
So, you know, it's like, okay, let me try merging with this one. At least, let me just try that. Then maybe I'll, I'm I'll perhaps... I'm going to bring up this point throughout this week very often. <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't you merging with me? Do you remember what you were teaching on the class? <laughs> and then I'll remind you, Narayani, you need to merge with me too. <laughs> it goes both ways, doesn't it? Oh, Arjuna, the supreme self having no beginning, no ending, and no attributes, even though it dwells in the body, neither acts nor is touched by any action. Very hard to believe, isn't it? Because it feels so real that I'm really just being touched. But again, it's helpful to come to that image of the dreamer and the dream. When you wake up in the morning, you've not been stabbed. <laughs> You're not wet from the swim you took in your dream. You're not fearful from the person who was chasing you in your dream. No, you're untouched. None of that happened, even though all of it happened, but none of it happened to you. So the soul's completely untouched, even though it has projected through its consciousness this entire crazy world, but it's untouched. And we can escape into that state of untouched. Every time we meditate, we can become untouched. And then we come back and we're just a little bit more aware of that reality. And then each time we go back into it, that awareness increases, 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 increases. That little bead of ego moves closer and closer towards spirit. And then one day, the bead is all the way to the side and it doesn't want to move ever again. Or as the subtle, all-pervading ether is unaffected by what moves through it, Similarly, the self, though all-pervading in the whole body, is never affected by it. O Bharata Arjuna, as the sun illuminates the whole world, so does the lord of the field. Lord of the field, I love this. Lord of this field, illuminate the whole body. In fact, this very center of our being is represented by the sun. Um, it's a, another beautiful image to have. Just try to see if you can, at the end of every meditation especially, just illuminate your entire body. Just feel. Master said, first learn to be omnipresent in your own body before you can be omnipresent in the universe. And that's what we try to do at the end of every meditation. We expand until we feel, because otherwise if I ask you, oh, where are you in the body? And most of us either think we're in the heart or many of us think we're here, you know, this is where our consciousness is centered. But we should ideally be just as much present in our knee, just as much present in our little toe, just as much present in, you know, the heel of my foot. But we don't think of ourselves as the, in the heel of our foot, you know, and that's another aspect. My master gave us the energization exercises. That was another intention of his, is to get so deeply into each muscle, each part of the body that you feel, I live there, I am there. It's not just a part of me, it is me. And then you become omnipresent in this entire body. So at the end of every meditation, try to become omnipresent. Don't just think, I'm just here. No, I'm, I'm in every, every cell vibrates with my consciousness. They go to the supreme who perceive with the eye of wisdom the distinction between the kshetra and the kshetragya and understand 
how beings can become liberated from involvement in prakriti. Again, he comes back to the final point. This is the last verse of this chapter. And this is all in response to that first question, not just what is prakriti and what is purusha, where Arjuna said, what is the objective of knowledge? What am I trying to learn? What am I trying to figure out in all of this? And finally, Krishna brings it to this point. They go to the Supreme who perceive with the eye of wisdom the distinction between Kshetra and Kshetragya. That's what, we're, well, that's what this game is. Am I this body? Am I the soul? Where is my bead? And what is that distinction? And the masters, they just move freely from one level of awareness to the other. They're fully aware of the fact that they have a body and that they're moving it. Krishna had a body and he moved it. You know, he ate, he rested, he did everything you and I are doing. There's a beautiful Zen saying, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, uh, make fire, cook food. After enlightenment, chop wood, <laughs> make fire, cook food. Nothing changes. You know, we think ki after enlightenment, you know, that's what we, our whole point is we want to escape. Uh, the whole spiritual path we see as an escape from the suffering and the, oh, I have to act every day and I have to think about other people and I have to worry about this and I have to worry about that. So I'm just going to be spiritual and none of this will touch me. That's not what this is about. You still are going to chop that wood, still going to make that fire, still going to cook that food. But now you know who is chopping the wood. If there's even any wood at all. <laughs> you know, God chopping God, God firing God, God cooking God, God eating God. And that's the beauty of his play. When you just merged in that bliss. But you're still going to act in this world. Because Krishna acts in this world. Nature acts in this world. God's acting through you in this world. So never give that up in the name of spirituality. Don't get aloof from the world. Withdraw from the world only so that you can give more of God to the world. Anyway, great, great chapter. Yeah, very, very good points. I was thinking about that story of one of the disciples telling Master Yogananda, Guruji, every time I see you, I see Divine Mother. Hmm. And Master replied, well, then behave accordingly. Hmm. And I love that story because Master brought everything into such a practical way. And that's how the devotee, like, I mean, each one of us should start living our lives because before we unite ourselves with everything else we need to behave appropriately and start discriminating of what do i want to unite my ego with somebody else's ego my ego with nature my ego with whatever or my soul and a very good practice is just to have the feeling that someone is always watching you. That, that everything you think, and of course your guru does that no matter what, but every thought you think, 
every action, every word, there is always the omnipresence registering in the ether, taking notes, <laughs> recording this, taking the selfie and recording <laughs> that action. So, so the day that you will leave you know, the body, you will be shown that clip and what you did. So it's vital for us to learn to behave. Swami Kriyananda says here, the devotee should always guard himself against temptation. Like almost suggesting us, inviting us, encouraging us, be alert, learn to behave, make sure before you speak that that comment, that word, is going to be beneficial. Make sure that that action is not reinforcing or is not indulging your ego in somebody, something else that you are trying to overcome. So I think a very, very good practice. In fact, this seclusion, I had like a, you know, very nice experience because when, when I was thinking about my time with Swami Kriyananda, I became a little bit nostalgic, like, mm, I wish I could live in the way and behave in the way I used to when I was around Swamiji. And a thought, a little insight, you know, like some sort of a, mm, insight came to my mind telling me, you know, you can still do that. Just imagine that Swamiji is still living here, that the Guru is, you know, in, in the body, and how would you behave if they were still in their physical form? And somehow I took that to heart and during that seclusion, and now when I came out after that, I, I'm playing with that thought that, you know, I'm imagining that Swamiji is in this ashram, that the Guru is around and he's watching and I need to be very careful <laughs> now how I behave, not because Abiruchi or Anya and Shurja are here, you know, and they are just watching me, but because I want to behave appropriately because the moment I'm in tune with the law of karma, the law of kindness, the law of high energy, the law of generosity, the law of, the law of positive thinking, the law of karma yoga and service and compassion and love, my energy automatically lifts up. And it puts me right there at the point between the eyebrows. And I would like if all of us can do this together, find a way, remind yourself, play with the thought that you are living with your guru, with your spiritual guide, with Babaji. I mean, how would you behave if Babaji was living in your very home with your parents, with your children, you know, sharing the living room, the bedroom, the kitchen. How would you behave? Wouldn't our highest 
will come out like naturally, not because they are telling us we should behave this way, because it's just the natural state of the soul. So perhaps this is something that you may want to experiment. You know, how would I behave if I would be constantly in the presence of a self-realized master, in the presence of Krishna, in the presence of Christ, in the presence of Babaji. And you would see how that very thought has the power to put you instantly in that frame of mind and it will just helps to align your energy where every action, every thought, every word, every vibration that emanates from you comes from your higher self. And only then we'll be ready to start uniting ourselves from that point to everything and everyone around us.